Hello and welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast. I'm Ian Welsh. At the first Innovation Forum Future of Climate Action conference a few weeks ago, my colleague Toby Webb was joined by Marie-Pierre Bousquet-Leconte, Science-Based Targets Implementation Director at Danone, Connor McMahon, Climate Delivery Manager at Nestle, Robert Horster, Global Sustainability Lead for Agricultural Supply Chains and Food Ingredients at Cargill, and Joshua Testerson, President of Everland. They had a fascinating discussion about natural climate solutions and how to implement them. We join the session just as Toby is inviting Marie-Pierre to make some opening comments. Marie-Pierre, why don't we start with you? I'd love to hear how this conversation is developing in Danone and where you think it's going to go. Firstly, my name is Marie-Pierre Bousquet-Leconte. And currently, I am the Science-Based Target Implementation Director for Danone. So what does it mean? It means that I am contributing to align Danone's climate ambition with the 1.5 degree IPCC scenario. And we are contemplating to set our science-based target in line with 1.5C shortly, and we are engaged to net zero by 2050. Agriculture for us is really at the heart of activity, and we are convinced that it is as well part of the solution in the fight to climate change, and that we can help nature to regenerate itself. So that's why we are currently really promoting and developing new generative models with our suppliers, and to achieve impact at scale, we absolutely need to co-build solutions and to empower a new generation of farmers. So we are building very close relationships, providing technical and as well economic support. And programs are deployed in all regions where we operate. And some are delivering very promising results. So we are especially through our regenerative agriculture platform engaging in US with different NERS and we launch a soil health initiative, just to give you a few examples. And we already got very promising results, not only on, uh, let's say, uh, carbon reduction, but as well on different aspects such as biodiversity protection, water protection, and bringing to farmers a new way and a more sustainable way to operate. What is uh, pretty challenging currently is that farmers do not have the financial capacity to move on their own, and uh, this transition is requiring, I would say, uh, material significant financial resources. And what we are aiming to do is really to co-build solutions as well to attract investors to finance the transition to uh, regenerative agriculture. Hopefully, we are seeing very promising signals, especially from when you see the new schemes and incentives designed by the Biden administration, also in Europe with the new Green Deal. And at Danone, what we did for a pretty long time now, for more than 10 years ago, we created some innovation funds, such as the Ecosystem Fund and as well the Livelihoods Carbon Fund. The ecosystem funds just provide you an illustration is developing some sustainable sourcing solution with high social impact as well improve the livelihoods of communities and to create jobs and it's at country business unit level so it is really embedded in the business strategy of our regions and we are as well partnering with financial investors such as investment banks and as well with NGO 
The livelihood carbon funds in which now we are more than 10 investors deploying some projects of agroforestry, reforestation, as well the development of sourcing uh, new sustainable sourcing uh, strategies and this providing to investors and especially Danone high quality carbon credits for the neutrality of our brands, especially Evian is currently carbon neutral uh, worldwide. So in the introduction, as I was mentioning, we are targeting net zero emission by 2050. We see fortunately an increasing number of companies engaged in this trajectory and we need that it is what we need to do to limit global warming. So hopefully what we want to stress on is that collaboration is key, not amongst the private sector, but as well with public and policymakers and financial sectors. So we absolutely need to, and it is our conviction, our deep conviction, that we need to, again, drive the transition to more resilient food system and to uh, be in a virtual circle and uh, to move more resilient ecosystems. What you're saying then, correct me if I'm wrong, are natural climate solutions just another term for what you were already doing that encompasses regenerative agriculture, carbon sequestration in soil, working with farmers on their own sustainability? Does it add anything new? Or is it just another word for what you might have called sustainable agriculture? So at Danone, I would say regenerative agriculture is really a very holistic approach that is promoting the decarbonization of the, the milk production, especially, but not only. It is as well for other crops, for, for fruits, etc. We are as well in the same team. We have a team that is the water cycle, so really dedicated to tackle water scarcity. And we are working together at landscape level. So I would say... I was focusing on regenerative agriculture again because it is key to cut our emissions huh, due to their weight, that is 60%. Huh? Globally, the scope 3 is 90%. But we are really uh, working on different aspects, biodiversity, animal welfare, and as well, uh, a key element is empowering a new generation of farmers. Huh? Connor, I suppose the same question for you. Is NCS, Natural Climate Solutions, just another word for what you're already doing? Or is it a helpful new paradigm to shift things forward and drive scale? What what are your views? I think my views are the solutions aren't new. These solutions have been around and have been implanted for quite some time. I think it's a really nice, interesting way of grouping some of these solutions that can be provided by nature to help us achieve some of our corporate commitments. It's more of a, a nice way of grouping and framing natural climate solutions that also have a pro-biodiversity benefit side to it. And they're not new, but it, it's a new grouping and it can be a useful grouping for pushing forwards. I think the paradigm shift that I've seen is before we were looking at doing less bad things. We were looking at stopping deforestation in our supply chains using less fertilizer. I think the, the shift change is this positive element that, that natural climate solutions can bring, this restoration element, increasing soil carbon stock, increasing above ground carbon stock. So maybe that's the new element to it, the focus on restoration or bringing restoration into the same picture as doing less harm. I think it's a nice way of of doing it because you can't just talk about the positive things you're doing if you're still doing bad things in your supply chain. So you need to get forest positive, as we said uh, before, it's kind of do less harm, stop doing any further harm and then continue to restore into the future. And I think Natural Climate Solutions groups that together quite nicely. Just give us a brief overview of where things are with you guys at the moment on this subject overall. 
like natural climate solutions. I think there's lots of estimates that it's going to play a huge role in us achieving one and a half degree agree aligned future. So maybe 20 or 30 percent of the reductions and removals we need will come through nature as a global community. For Nestle, it's even more than that. We think that roughly 50% of the reductions that we need to achieve our one and a half degree aligned commitment will come from natural climate solutions. So it's a massive cornerstone of, of what we want to do going forwards. For Nestle, just kind of obviously the three sides that, have, that are always there, the conservation efforts. So making sure we achieve our deforestation-free commitments on time. Obviously, there's been challenges. They've been postponed. We need to meet those. If we miss those targets, it doesn't matter how many trees we plant. It's, we're still going to miss what we need to do in the future. So Uh, hitting our deforestation-free milestones is a cornerstone. We're also joining up lots of global initiatives like the LEAF Coalition, so helping governments protect tropical forests, so much more kind of let's work together to protect these forests, let's not just work through our isolated supply chains. So trying to explore these kind of collaborative models to restore forests that are still under threat from commodity trade. So huge focus on conservation, then it will be the regenerative agriculture agenda, it's a huge one on, on the Nestle's books. So we've committed quite a lot of, of money and investment into transitioning our farming base into regenerative agriculture because we know it comes at a cost. We know that we need to invest in this. We know we need to reward farmers and incentivize farmers to adopt these practices and to deliver the environmental outcomes we want them to deliver. Putting money on the table, obviously, there's questions around regenerative agriculture still. We know what the good practices are. How do we determine what a truly regenerative system is? What level of actual soil monitoring and ongoing monitoring is involved? The permanence question so yes, there's questions around that, but we know we need to answer those questions and as an industry move forward on that topic and bring farmers along with us on the journey. And then third part, restoration. So we have a huge commitment on tree planting at 200 million trees by 2030, 20 million trees roughly every year if we divide it that way. So a huge effort in reforestation. We also look at kind of peatland restoration projects. We're looking at wetland and grassland restoration projects. So yeah, a big focus on restoring lands Our focus on restoration is very much in the sourcing landscapes that we buy from. We think it's very important that we look at our sourcing landscapes rather than just trying to find the cheapest removal project that's available on the market. We want to go to our landscapes, engage the communities that we're sourcing from, engage at that landscape level to find the right solutions to to implement. So we're very much in favor of restoration of the landscapes that we rely on and supporting our sourcing communities to deliver that. A quick clarification. What's the sort of boundary between tree planting and forest restoration? Because it's one thing to plant a monoculture and it's another thing to restore a forest. And restoring a forest is incredibly difficult and complex and expensive and painstaking. It's like the toughest puzzle anyone's ever seen. But but tree planting is also not getting particularly good press if it's a monoculture. So how do you define planting versus restoration in your planning? Well, it's about planting the right trees. It's not about planting the trees that grow the fastest and sequester the highest amount of carbon. And I think this comes back to why we focus on the landscapes that we're sourcing from. If we just buy carbon removal credits from tree planting, it's likely that those projects have been optimized to deliver the maximum carbon, et cetera. But if we're working in the landscapes that we're sourcing from, we have a vested interest for that to be a kind of sustainable, biodiverse, healthy forest and making sure that the trees that are being planted represent the species that should be planted in that area. Consider... I don't know, the, cli- the local climates, et cetera, consider the needs of the communities nearby if they still need to be able to gather and, and use forests for their own purposes. So yeah, it's local solutions to reforestation, planting the right tree mix and doing it the right way in the local context, not just having maximum carbon approach that you apply every hectare you can find around the world. So the tree planting is really part of a landscape restoration approach, really? 
it's tree planting on farm, so shade trees, introduction to kind of coffee and cocoa farms, and then reforestation in the landscape, which is definitely part of our forest restoration side. It's a number of trees going in the ground, but it, that ties into trees on farm, trees in landscapes as part of proper forest restoration efforts. Robert, let me turn to you. What does all this mean to your cargo? I mean, you've been working in agriculture for 150 years as a company. Has natural climate solutions changed the game or is it kind of more of what you were already doing? It's a new term, obviously, but I don't think it's something that we've been doing thus far. I see three new elements. The first element is that we have a recognition that agriculture serves to nourish the world, but also can be a solution to the climate change issue, which is clearly one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issue that we're facing as a planet today. And there's plenty of research on that. In fact, if you get to a, a two degree increase in temperature and average temperature, your yields already start declining. So MIT has done extensive research on that. And it's true, let alone what happens if you go two and a half, three degrees. So it's in a very important aspect to remember that agriculture is serving to feed the world as well as be a solution to climate change. Then I get to the point that the previous two speakers also mentioned is that holistic approach, right? Where you say, okay, look, it's about mitigating climate change through sequestration of carbon, through restoring watersheds, through increasing biodiversity. If you do restoration, for instance, or if simply if you do regenerative agricultural practices, but also if you think about this, it can actually bring economic benefits to farmers. So the point that Marie was mentioning on engaging farmers really resonates with Cargill business for 155 years of you know, engaging farmers. The other thing, Toby, that your climate solutions brings is the opportunity to mobilize capital in a significant way. You think about carbon markets, right? We see carbon markets basically emerging everywhere. And the question, of course, is what type of carbon credits are you buying or are you generating? So we have to be mindful of the quality right, and the credibility of those credits. If they are entered into a reputable registry, right? And if, if at the end of the day, those credits become bankable and credible, then they do actually serve to both remove and reduce carbon. But there's this mobilization of capital and McKinsey have done extensive research into that. And they've in fact mobilized the whole industry around scaling carbon markets, building on the success of compliance markets, but also uh, plain and simple commodity markets. There is now an opportunity to scale the solutions offered by carbon sequestration and removal and reduction by mobilizing capital into those markets, right? And so you can actually scale. It's, it doesn't become sort of a project that Danone or Nestle or Cargill are doing. It, it actually becomes large, right? So that's what I see as the three new elements, right? It's the holistic approach. It's mobilizing capital and also the realization that farming being 25% of emissions or whatever estimate is out there, but let's say 25% as a, as a conservative estimate, also is part of the solution. I think that's what NCS actually brings as new insights. The development of those markets is clearly very exciting but they're still pretty nascent, right? If your CEO rang you up and said, Robert, when's this happening? What would your prediction be? It depends on how you define success. If you take the lens of mobilizing sufficient capital to drive nature-based climate solutions, between five to 10 years is probably at this stage, based on what we know to be true today, a realistic estimate. I'm a bit biased because I read the McKinsey study, and but they also are in this sort of the same time frame. But if you then go, okay, but now actually you're stacking up all the commitments that companies are making, you know, both in our supply chain and out of our supply chain, you add them up and you look at the ability of the market to actually serve that demand. I don't think five to 10 years is enough. I think there will be sufficient time needed to scale those markets. And when I say markets, we shouldn't be thinking of plain and simple commodity markets because the carbon market is everything but that. It is super complex if you think about different solutions how you generate the credits, where the credits are generated, what registry they're in, and so on and so forth, what they actually bring. 
the credible credit is actually that when you think about nature-based solutions, actually bring value to the farmer. So the farmer in the first place has to see the value. Otherwise, it's not going to be a lasting solution. If you think about that, you think about the ability of capacity, if you will, of nature and agriculture to generate those credits and you stack it up against the demand that's out there, I think we're looking at more than five to 10 years. Let's hope that can accelerate. Of course, lots of work to be done about verification and accounting and monitoring and so on. Joshua, tell us about Everland. Of course, everyone, I think, knows who Danon and Cargill and Nestle are. Everland, perhaps a slightly smaller brand, but you've been doing some fascinating work for many years on marketing credits from some of the best projects in the world, which are doing exactly the subject of this session. So briefly, tell us about Everland and tell us how the solutions are evolving. We're a conservation organization that wears the clothes of a marketing company. We have one thing that we do. We partner with high-impact, community-based, wildlife-centric, Red Plus projects in the developing world. Those projects do amazing work to address the drivers of deforestation in their landscapes. And what we do is exclusively represent them in the carbon markets. And so we help communities to monetize their carbon assets and unlock this challenge that many have been speaking about, which is driving sustainable finance at scale to the ground to really provide durable and material incentives and then rewards for effective climate action by halting deforestation. So that's what we do. I want to like take a step back in our conversation the question that I think is really motivating a lot of this discussion is like, what's resource efficient, cost effective, practical for business to achieve an impact at scale? And there's a good question to ask, which is what is the impact at scale that we in the world can make that makes the most difference for the world? And I just want to put a little plug in in this regard for something that we've talked peripherally about so far, but I think this actually needs to be right in the middle, which is that forests, existing, standing forests, mature ancient forests, primary forests, especially the tropical forests, are at the center of the two most important ecological crises that we're facing, which is the loss of life, loss of species, and climate change. The loss of standing forest is responsible for just a tick under 10% of total greenhouse gas emissions. Any projection, any of the pathways to get us down in the next 10 years toward achieving climate stabilization at one and a half degrees, every one of them requires essentially a total elimination of deforestation in 10 years. You can't get there unless you do that. That's not to speak of the million or so species that are imminently at risk of extinction. And of course, the problem with that is you can't restore the species when it's gone, at least not presently. Maybe with CRISPR in the future, we're going to be able to do that. That's kind of interesting. But as far as I understand, when you lose it, you lose it. And so there's something of precious and irrecoverable value that doesn't have a price tag in the market today that is under real threat right now. So we believe that the most critical impact to be made at this time, this isn't a either or this or that, it's both and, but we really want to light a focus on the need to halt tropical deforestation. The observation that we have from working on the ground in this, um, and I spent a number of years before this assignment responsible for field programs at Rainforest Alliance. So we did a lot of work with actually all of your companies and large scale work on the ground in your commodity landscapes, training and technical assistance and all of that. 
We really believe that bottom-up, community-based, landscape-level approaches are really, really important to this because this is where the drivers of deforestation actually manifest in the landscape. When you're channeling resources, wherever they're coming from, ultimately they have to land in like real places doing real things, engaging in the real work to reshape incentives in people's behavior at scale if you're talking about protecting the forest. And so we think it's obviously like a moral imperative for all of us, but I recognize because we've been in this work for a long time that it's also like a very pragmatic issue for supply chains because all of these commodities depend on the ecosystem services of a functioning landscape and the forest is at the center of the provision of those ecosystem services. There's a scale and an urgency thing that are coming together, and it makes this problem very hard. We need to build on proven approaches, things that we know actually work right now. We've never done this before, this kind of an action, this kind of a scale, but we do need to stand on top of results that seem to show, hey, this is ready to go bigger. And I do believe project-based Red Plus has really emerged as a very high-impact solution. This imperative to deliver resources in a fair and abundant way to the ground to reward and incentivize communities for effective action is like exactly what this mechanism does. So far, Voluntary Red Plus has grown to about 300 million tons, a little more than that over the past 10 years, and it's growing, have been eliminated. Those emissions have been reduced. So that's about equivalent to taking six and a half million passenger vehicles off the road for this period of time. And to the point about financing that you brought, Robert, I mean, yeah, we're seeing this. Indicatively, your five to 10 years feels about right because the amount of capital that is lining up now to work on and really expand this mechanism is lining up fast in our world for sure. It's extremely exciting. And the reason why it's exciting is because what does success mean? Let's not lose it so that we have to restore it. Like we don't keep adding to the problem of needing to do more restoration. Like we have to, it's like the bathtub. We have to turn the spigot off, not so that we don't have to keep like increasing the drain size. So, you know, we want to stop the deforestation. This means that we need to meaningfully engage people who would stand to do better by taking the forest down. And we were talking especially about like smallholder farmers who have poor agricultural practices and lack the finance needed to really turn it around. This is where Red Plus comes in as an incredible catalytic complementary solution to this problem. And Connor, I can remember being in Sumatra in one of the Nescafe coffee, Robusta coffee landscapes some years ago when we were doing a joint program with you at Rainforest Alliance. And They were doing amazing work, but it was like right at the edge of this protected area. It was impossible to stop people anyway from encroaching and moving further in. There just weren't enough incentives. You couldn't bring enough money to bear, and it's not practical. But this is an interesting approach where you can combine effective protection and engaging the community in the effective protection and then receiving financial benefits. And we've seen, like, even in coffee, that work really well over in, say, Peru in the Alto Mayo landscape, Alto Mayo forest. Now, I'm happy to talk more about that. There's a lot of examples of that type of success that show, I think, really clearly there's an interesting, valuable solution that's here today that can really help complement these kinds of efforts, do something that's extraordinarily meaningful, centrally meaningful for the climate, while also providing a mechanism to deliver the financing exactly to the folks that really need it the most. What's the level of business interest from companies like the ones on this panel 
in buying those credits and investing in Red Plus projects. I'm just curious as to how that's accelerating and whether or not the term, you know, Red Plus and these projects are actually well known enough by business as a solution. This is our biggest challenge and opportunity. No, I think this mechanism isn't as well as understood as it should be and as as well as it will be because we're really going to work on this now. As far as the materiality of this, so I'll just speak to our company. This year, just from the red projects that we represent exclusively, and that's 16 projects that generate about 16 million annual tons a year of emissions reductions, of whom a couple are just new to the portfolio. We have sold um, about 35 million tons since the start of this year. The year-on-year growth from previous years, it's a massive step change. Awareness actually is growing, and especially like the fundamental case for why we need to protect forests is sort of like it's all settled science now. There's some things that are unclear. There's some things that are clear. What's clear is halting deforestation is an imperative. What is clear to us is that there is a really good way to do that that is right for scale. And more and more companies, I think, are aligning with that view as they take a little deeper look into it. That's been our experience. It strikes me that Red Plus needs to perhaps do a bit of a rebrand in some way. It's a complicated term, but it also is unfortunately associated with offsets in the sense that offsets were, you know, there, there were some dodgy ones discredited some years ago and there are still some dodgy ones now. But Red Plus, actually, when I look at the projects, really you're helping organizations do far more than just cut carbon. I mean, it's preserving ecosystems and it's enhancing livelihoods and it's helping companies meet their SDG targets as well. Isn't that an important factor to help distinguish good Red Plus from some of the carbon offsets, which companies feel a bit guilty about doing as a last resort. Absolutely. And I think that like the emergence of some third-party standards, like the so-called SD-VISTA standard, are really helpful in this regard because they're providing the capacity now to differentiate and validate claims concerning the quality and the actual impact level of the work. Because the whole heart of this work with Red Plus is that you're getting the emissions reductions, but you're generating tremendous co-benefits for biodiversity and for communities. Our work as a company, we're kind of standing in, right now, we have a very extensive impact field level impact reporting program that we do and it's all aligned to the SDGs and so forth so that we can provide companies with an ESG toolkit to integrate all that work and all that work that's flowing out of the field into their reporting. But to scale this, this is what's really necessary. This is the kind of thing that we're actually doing as a business is kind of preparing for the scale by investing in new monitoring and evaluation systems, impact data reporting, and so forth. So the actual things that are happening the things that are actually happening can be credibly demonstrated to be happening and then utilized in the context of reporting about real achievements that are being made as a result of these investments. Connor, let me just ask you, and maybe Mary, you might want to comment on Robert as well. What's the sort of attitude inside your business around things like Red Plus? Is it well understood? I mean, I'm sure you all know about it, but is it still unfortunately a bit associated with carbon offsets and to the earlier question? Do you see it as part of a balanced mix of solutions combined with, you know, incessing and landscape projects? Yeah, the people close to the subject understand it well, understand the value that it brings. The people more on the periphery are seeing certain pieces of news popping up, seeing certain criticisms and don't fully understand the topic in the depth that they need to. So I think there is definitely that element to this. But I think that's, yeah, it's about advocacy and demonstrating that these projects are a very important part uh, if, we're, if we're to move forward, on, especially around conservation, but towards any kind of claim about positive impact. 
the good news was that we joined this LEAF coalition. There's a big financial commitment associated with that. That's very much about protecting tropical forests. It's very much going to be embedding these red approaches. The interesting thing about that coalition is they're tackling some of the sensitive subjects like what's being claimed in the national inventory, what can companies credibly claim, those type of elements, which there was some uncertainty around until now. And I think thankfully they're being addressed and the clarity is coming going forward. And then the other question is, in terms of how our net zero target, how do these claims come into that picture? The rule book on net zero is being drafted by SBTI. There's a couple of drafts out, and I think they're moving in, in the right direction. Also, the flag initiative by WWF is addressing this topic, but there is uncertainty around this. The good news for us, at least, is that we know we have a home for these projects. Even if they are generating carbon credits, we can still use those towards making some of our brands carbon neutral. Even if they don't fit into our net zero strategy, which we hope they will have a home in the future, they can still contribute towards our carbon neutral brand journey, which is kind of something we're doing in parallel. So yeah, hugely important part of our strategy. Marie, what's the conversation in Danon around this? I would say to build on what uh, Connor was uh, mentioning, and we funded this uh, livelihood carbon funds, and as well, we created the livelihood fund for family farming with uh, Mars Company. So it's true that carbon offset and carbon credits, high quality carbon offsets and carbon credits are necessary and as well can be a kind of way to implement innovative approaches at landscape level. But today, for us, uh, what would be really decisive is to bring at scale uh, insetting projects, to really build a resilient ecosystem on the long term, and to be able as well to claim, for instance, carbon removals such as uh, soil carbon sequestration in the certification schemes for carbon neutrality of plants. So it would be, I would say, it is at the heart of the conversation that we have currently at Danone. We feel that carbon offsets are a good way to showcase to especially our consumers what we are doing at a local level. But more and more, we would like to develop projects and carbon credits at a local level. For instance, if we are selling products in Germany, it would be great to generate carbon credits at Germany level to be, let's say, very consistent in our marketing messages to the consumers. While currently, we are all uh, implementing uh, essentially a project in developing countries. So it's great for local communities, for sure. And and we are improving the livelihoods of uh, those communities. So it's absolutely great. We have a great uh, project in Kenya, etc., But we need to consider as well in developed countries uh, to implement, I would say, a resilient ecosystem and to develop those type of projects as well in the value chain of the companies. I would say it is currently our views and discussions. Robert, do you have any brief comments? I want to move on, but I want to give you a chance to chip in here. Yeah, no, I I think so to your question, Toby, do we see the need? The answer is yes, absolutely. We see the need. To basically build on what Maria and Connor were saying, you know, the credibility is an important one. And you also alluded to that in your question, right? So, yes, there have been Dutch counterparts, but you will find those everywhere, essentially, right, in all commodity markets that we operate in. But we feel that if you have credible counterparts, and if you have projects that are really making impact on the ground in a similar fashion as insetting would have to have a value to the farmer who generates them, with those carbon offsets, I mean, it needs to have credibility, it needs to have an impact on the ground. And of course, your global system of registries will go a long way to generate that credibility, right? And just to make sure that these credits can be bankable and can be retired. But at the end of the day, again, coming back to my earlier point, if you look at the basic supply and demand of commitments versus supply of carbon removal and carbon reduction credits, 
if we head in the right direction, like Connor was describing with the science-based target initiative, everything gets recognized in the right way, then we do need both the insets and the offsets in order to have companies meet their net zero targets, right? We're talking about our supply chain today, but there's tons of companies out there who are outside of our supply chain who make similar commitments, right? And they do not have agriculture as a means to drive the carbon removal from their supply chain. Short answer is yes, we absolutely need this as a marketplace. There's lots of questions coming in. There's a really good one, a simple one about smallholder farmers. No conversation about supply chain agriculture is complete without the smallholder challenge. It's one thing to do something on a large plantation, but as we know, smallholders are challenging and in many countries, plots are getting smaller. A lot of these farms are frankly unviable. And that's a big, big challenge, as we know, across many different crops. So I'm not expecting you to have the magic bullet solution for this, but how do we make sure we approach this early on so that smallholder farmers can really benefit from natural climate solutions? The obvious one, I suppose, is you know ecosystem services payments. But then we know that's very hard to do because the verification and the measurement and so on and the carbon accounting is, is not there yet. So I just want to get a sense of how you think this is moving on and uh, where you think it's going to go. I mean, is technology going to play the key role here? Mary, I'm guessing there's no magic one solution. There never is. But how do you see smallholders playing and being incentivized around this issue in the coming years? Yes, so I would say that, for instance, at Danone, we are mainly, let's say, sourcing fresh meat from very smallholders, and it is really a daily technical assistance that milk cycle teams are providing locally that first, let's say, train farmers to implement the most sustainable practices from an environmental point of view and as well from an economic point of view. So very often we have this kind of increase in efficiency at farm level. And we have very long relationships with farmers. Huh? We have contracts for 30 years sometimes. This is really the close collaboration that can support farmers on the long term. I would say uh, we think that it is part of the solution. Huh? That is, we need, it is not uh, easy. It is very challenging. Mm. But to be very close from a farmers, uh, let's say, concerns, and it's key huh, in finding a solution. Josh, how do smallholder farmers benefit within the projects that you work on? The criticism of fair trade in the past has been, you know, some money goes into a co-op. We're not quite sure where it goes. You do see some rather well-dressed chiefs and some kids without shoes <laughs> in, in some places. Obviously, you want to avoid that happening where there's, where there's money coming into a project or a landscape. And I'm not saying that happens in all co-ops, but it, but it can. So how do you make sure that you're communicating to your customers and, and showing that the smallholder farmers in these projects are really benefiting? Well, I'll just say before starting, there's a few well-dressed people in the boardroom as well, aren't there? This is not a unique issue for anybody the challenge of smallholder farming is huge. You know, it's systemic. It kind of revolves back to the question of to what extent is farming, especially small, small farming of commodity crops, where does it fit in a viable, sustainable livelihood? And that has questions about the structure of value chains, all kinds of questions that are beyond our scope. But I want to acknowledge that like, we're bringing the lens of natural climate solutions and it's intersecting with a much bigger challenge. If you can even believe it, a more complicated world. I'm going to acknowledge that and take your question in a more limited way, but I don't want to, in answering it, imply that it's a route to a systemic solution in total. It's a piece. 
I just like giving specific examples because it's kind of easiest. And I talked about the Altamayo. I'm just giving an example here. You know, the developers we work with are like the large conservation organizations, Conservation International, Wildlife Conservation Society, and, and so forth. You know, really, really outstanding organizations that have a long history of working with, among other smallholders and landscapes. In the Altamayo, it's an amazing protected area, mountainous Andean Amazon rainforest, extreme biodiversity. The Altamayo protected area is like a paper park, was a paper park. It was established in the late 1980s, but there was no enforcement. And there was a significant migration of people, you know, thousands of families into this area from another part of Peru. They came from a totally different climate area and saw fit to start growing coffee. And predictably, we're growing bad quality coffee with bad practices. And this place had the highest deforestation rate of any protected area in Peru. You know, when the project set up, the fundamental mechanism that they worked with, and it was, I'm going to paper over the hard yards, right? But the mechanism is engage in voluntary conservation agreements with the farmers. Can you imagine being the first one to do that? I talked to like the fifth family. It's mind blowing because they got death threats from their own community because what had happened was they saw anyone else as wanting to come in to take their land and kick them out of this area. So there's a whole social issue, violent unrest and loggerheads with the government, with the park service. And by and by, the carbon revenues that were being generated were used and invested in. And the people that are doing this work are unbelievable folks we talk about regenerative agriculture, you know, this is like deep ecological agriculture, cover cropping, intercropping, all with an eye of doing really high quality, really high productivity work. And then they helped them, did all the training and the technical assistance, yes, to set up a fair trade, organic certified cooperative. And they've been working with them for years to build up the organizational capacity, the governance, the transparency of financial arrangements and so forth. And now this pandemic is hit and they were able to produce and ship out, I can't remember the number, they sold like a million and a half dollars of really high quality into the specialty markets. They developed a coffee lab, they trained kids from the community, they became cuppers. And so now and they have this beautiful and dynamic feedback going back to the field, post-harvest, processing and all that. So the quality that can, comes in higher and higher grade overall. And it's been an amazing story. So I'm just giving you an anecdote of like how this can work in context with carbon finance, because a lot of money was spent on this. And it's hard to imagine that being invested so easily. And maybe it can be out of your supply chain, but this is just an example of the way that I've seen it happen. That sounds like a really positive example, because you're right, these things have to be brought to life on a case study basis, because otherwise we're just sort of talking about general principles, aren't we? There's a lot more to talk about here. Unfortunately, we are um, out of time, I think, for this session. It's been absolutely fascinating. There's so much more to talk about. And I can only thank our speakers for their, their frankness and their insights. We can't claim to have covered everything, but I think we've made a, a meaningful dent in the conversation. So thank you all for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you're interested in learning more about where offsetting sits within the overall framework of solutions for companies and other organisations getting to net zero emissions, do look out for a new series of written and audio content coming out from Innovation Forum over the coming months. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Mm-hmm.